Hi, I'm Annette Helda. You may remember me from my five appearances in Star Trek, including Nadia Larkin in The Siege of AR-558 in Deep Space Nine. You're listening to Trek Untold. Trek Untold, Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Today on the show, we have another fairly elusive member of the Star Trek universe whose work you've seen and certainly will remember, but her stories have never really been in the spotlight that much, at least not until now. And it's a shame because she's got some real amazing stories to tell, and that person we're speaking with today is the highly accomplished and very gifted actress named Annette Held. Annette appeared five times in the Star Trek universe across TV, film, and video games. She first appeared as the Romulan named Karina in the DS9 episode Visionary from Season 3. Next, she showed up as a Starfleet officer in First Contact, who, well, didn't quite make it out of that one alive. But hey, third time's a charm for her as she was Takar in the Voyager episode Scientific Method from Season 4. She then showed up as a musician in the Star Trek Klingon video game, working alongside Galron himself, Robert O'Reilly. And finally, she was Lieutenant Nadia Larkin in the seventh season DS9 episode, The Siege of AR-558, one of my personal favorites of all time. Beyond Star Trek, Annette has spent much of her time performing on stage, which we will chat about today, but you may have also caught her in roles in films and shows like Chicago Hope, Nixon, Bean, yes, the Mr. Bean movie, Providence, Magnolia, and Family Law. However, as life went on, she discovered that her true calling may have been elsewhere, and these days has dedicated her life to a very different pursuit. And it's one that when you hear about it later on, you're going to agree that it's definitely a perfect fit for her. As far as I can tell, Annette hasn't done too many interviews about her career, let alone Star Trek. So when I say there's some untold stories in this one, that is not a lie. Her resume is diverse and her skills are unparalleled, so I was very happy to have some one-on-one time with today's very special guest, Mrs. Annette Held. But before we begin this week's episode, I want to remind you to follow Trek Untold on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold, all one word. You can get show updates, check out some fun memes, and let me know what you think about what's going on with the current events in the Star Trek universe. You can also support this show directly on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can listen to the shows before they come out, know about my guests well in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, get transcripts of these episodes to make sure you get all the info, and more benefits coming soon, including watch parties and live streams. But that's all dependent on more fans like you coming over and letting me know you want to be a part of events like that. If you want some Trek Untold merchandise, check out our store for gear and apparel, including shirts, hats, stickers, water bottles, notebooks, and a whole lot more. New designs will be added throughout the year, so it's always worth taking a peek. Trek Untold also has an Amazon shop where you can peruse everything Star Trek, sci-fi, and geeky on Amazon in one convenient location. If you're looking for a gift for the Trekkie in your life, or maybe want to see some of my favorite non-Star Trek things that you can get for yourself, check out the link for my Amazon shop in the show notes on the audio version and in the description below this video on YouTube. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platforms that allow for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review to help out this show. 
If you're watching it on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com at Trek Untold and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. All of these things help more people find this show and to continue growing and bringing you awesome guests each and every week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold. And now join me on the other side of the screen. You've seen her in a bunch of things on Star Trek. You've seen her in a bunch of things in movies and film and all sorts of other places. I'm super excited today to be chatting with you. We're joined by Annette Held. Annette, how's it going? I'm wonderful. I couldn't be better. Thank you so much for joining us today. And by the way, for folks who are watching the video version, I see that you're not alone today. Oh, Bobo, you get to say hi. <laughs> yeah, she's my like emotional support dog. I have three little tinies. They're all rescues and... Uh... They're kind of reluctant on camera, but they scoot up next to me and they keep me quiet and sane and comfy when I'm shy on camera. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and Minnie's in the back. They keep us all uh, in perspective about the world. Don't all dogs. I mean, that's do you ever have a, have you ever had a dog? I never had a dog. Uh, I've had, haven't had anything that has four legs, basically. If it's swam in a bowl, I've had one of those, but uh, no animals oh, really? yet. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Sometime. Sometime it'll call you. Maybe. The world would be uh, terrible without dogs. That's what. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very very true. Uh, so yeah, no, let's jump on in here because we have a lot to discuss today. Not just Star Trek, but so much more that I want to get to know today. Uh, so let's kick things off on that note. A little bit more Star Trek centric here. Uh, so Annette, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Did you grow up watching the series? Oh yeah, I mean, I am not nearly as versed as the amazing. Uh, fans of Star Trek who were like bibliophiles, you know, they're, I would come home from school though. And um, I mean, it was when William, I'm <laughs> dating myself, but William Shatner, he was, they were in Leonard Nimoy. They were uh, so committed to what they were doing and they were so zeroed in and focused. And it was a real optimistic show. It was very, um, you know, I mean, it, there was my favorite Martian on about the same time, but it was like sort of a lighthearted look at something that, I don't know, Star Trek kind of grabbed you. If, if you were, it was going to grab you. You know, it uh, it was taking your minds places that Rod Sterling was in um, Rod Sterling in um, Twilight, you know, zone. It was really testing you out there. You know, it's cool. It's kind of fun that you mentioned my favorite Martian because that was with Ray Walston, and you know, he was in Star Trek. <gasps> Serious? I didn't know that. Yeah, he's actually in. Uh, I think he's in at least two episodes, and he did one with uh, on the Next Generation where he was working, in fact, alongside Patrick Stewart because he played. Boothby, who was the groundskeeper at Starfleet Academy. Oh, cool. Yeah, very cool. So he's, he's done all, all manner of sci-fi. Plus, he was Popeye's dad in the Robert Williams film. But we oh, yeah, yeah, that. yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, let's get a little bit of your origin story now, Annette. I'd love to hear a little bit about where you were born, who your parents were, and what they did, and what little Annette wanted to be when she grew up. I wanted to be a big, fat grandma, just like my grandma. <laughs> Um, she didn't uh, know that it uh, that was the biggest compliment I could have given her because she had such a warmth and girth and, you know, but my mom was a nurse. My dad was a Norwegian. Uh, he started up lumberjacking up in, uh, he'd born right over after they got over on the boat and um, I'm half Norwegian and half mixture. And they were of meager, you know, modest means who sacrificed everything for their kids. and. Um, they were artistic and unique. And my dad was a wonderful golfer. He, he imbued that to, through to me. My mom was a creative, lovely, strong woman who uh, 
I just wouldn't change my upbringing for anything. I grew up in Long Beach, California, and I was always kind of shy and oversensitive. And uh, I was one of three kids uh, who were put through that gifted um, shoot. And uh, that puts you in a strange place when you're going to a different special class or the special this and that. And unrealistic, you know, pressures are starting to be put on you. And I'm very fortunate I found the arts early on because um, that released you from any shyness because you had a, a place to put it. So in high school, I had this wonderful teacher, Randy Bowden, who, um, you know, he was having you do things in your the little tiny black box we had. Even then it was, you know, he'd bring pictures of, oh, I, I don't want to bastardize it by using that picture. Very poignant, wonderful, earth shattering pictures in the, early 70s, late 60s, which were uh, provocative of the war and such. Mm. And make, you know, go, go from there, improv, boom, you know. Mm. Uh, So it was treating you as an adult early on. And that grabbed me. It was, uh, you know, everything from Flowers for Algernon to, in fact, I remember Flowers for Algernon, I was, I put, he said, what do you want to, what role do you want to play? The leading lady, the doctor. And then he said, and I went up afterwards and I looked at the cast list and it said, the mother. I was like, oh. And he went, man, you, you know, disappointed. And I said, well, no, 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 not at all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he goes, that's the juicy role. That's like she gets the meat cleaver and she goes insane and she comes in and bar, you know. <laughs> and that op- started opening my eyes to the wonderful career that would be mine. Uh, so that is really interesting that you basically had just like such a really cool, interesting teacher in those very formative years. I mean, you know, that that really is some heavy stuff to be thrown at a child. And, you know, yeah. a teenager, I mean, you think you're an adult as a teenager, but you're not. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, that, that is some big stuff there. So, like, what's, uh, I guess, a lesson you remember? I mean, you just mentioned that great story about Applause for Algeron, but uh, what's a lesson you remember learning from that teacher that you think stuck with you throughout all your time performing? Well, he was a blessing and um, he treated you as an adult, as I said. And he, uh, well, I remember one thing is when I first did my first show, uh, I think we were doing Thurber Carnival, not sure, but uh, I was out there in the first, and as I said, it was like a little black box, only about 120 people. Oh no, it was bad seed. I was playing the the mother and she had that drunken scene where she comes in and she's crying and all this stuff. And I thought I'd done a wonderful first act because I was real tears and all that, you know, the mother of the, the little boy who was killed, character actor even then. And then he comes back halfway through intermission and he comes backstage. And I thought he was like going to say, you know, oh, no, that a boy, you know, good job. And he was like going, Annette, we can't hear you. We can't hear you. And I just went, oh, and that was my first introduction to technique. Oh. So that was uh, a big lesson and other things like, you know, that I can go uh, kind of enumerate, but um, Randy Bowden. Yeah. He was a dedicated one. I have my hats off to teachers like that, that just mm. give and give and give. Yeah. Shout out to so, Randy. Uh, and you know, on that note, did you go to a school of performing arts once you got out of high school? Uh, no, I went to UC Santa Barbara because they had a good art school and I was actually also uh, split. Uh, I was doing modern dance, ceramics, theater, all the arts were just feeding me and comforting me. And and uh, I didn't hadn't really decided whether I was going to go into theater or into uh, visual arts. Who has at the beginning of college, you know? And uh, so you see, Santa Barbara was 
they had surfboard lockers on campus. And my brother was going to Stanford and I was looking at the pressure wheel he's under and I went, ah, you know, I'm not going to be a doctor. I'm going to be in the arts. So I'm going to go here. And they had a wonderful drama department and they were a wonderful ceramics department. And then I got pulled away actually in um, one, my first year, they didn't allow you to take a lot of advanced classes for some reason in acting. And I went, I got pulled into rowing. Okay. And uh, they like tall people. And a friend of mine had been a rower and they kind of said, come, come, you're tall. Just explore. Come check it out. I fell in love with it. It was like the equivalent of uh, dance and theater because it's an ensemble. Like you get eight women in a sweet boat and you all have to be of the same mind and body. And, you know, just one little it's all technique and passion. So you're all in this boat together. And unless you give and yield to the rest of your teammates, if you try to uh, sky your blade or something like that, the whole boat's going to go up like this. So it was a wonderful learning experience and blew my mind. But then I got back on track with acting. And and then after three years, I realized, you know, the way this program set up, I just need more. And I don't think I want to go four years here. And so I started exploring because what, then I was finding out about all the professional electric training programs, uh, everything from Juilliard to, you know, SMU. And I went to San Francisco and auditioned for many of them and landed on the guy in Seattle, uh, Bill Ho- uh, Bob Hobbs. He, <laughs> I mean, there was Yale, you know, Juilliard. I mean, my, my guy, at, he's not a barber, was going, well, go for Juilliard. You know, you're, you're good. You know, blah, blah, blah. And, but I kept thinking ACT, those places, they all kind of have a stamp. I kind of see these people, the alumni, la, la, la. And I went into the audition with uh, Bob Hobbs, and he jumped up on the table at one point. And he goes, improv, damn it, improv, that's what it's all about. And because he was saying, go through your resume, give me some of this, give me some of this Bernardo Alba, give me some of this, you know, Twelfth Night. And I'm going, well, uh, it was a long time since I did that. I don't know the exact words. Because I don't care, improv, that's what it's <laughs> he had these bushy little eyebrows. And my dad is of the uh, Northwest background with all the Norskis up there. So I went there for three years and I was uh, exposed to so many wonderful people and guest directors coming in. It was just, it was a different, it, they let you be who you are. They didn't try to strip you down and strip you away and put their plant on you. It was like, a, and people that are still my my dear Dear difference because they only had about 13 people in a class for three years so it's really really cool a lot of wonderful people came out of that program yeah i find it fascinating that like rowing was kind of a part of your acting journey and i think this kind of leads into the fact that you know much like a sport acting is a discipline and it requires a certain mindset to be able to do it and handle it there's there's a lot that goes into acting there's a lot of yourself that you put into a role uh so yeah i, I just find that fascinating i mean i don't know if you've ever thought about it that way too but just like the amount of discipline that you probably learned from doing the rowing and what you then put into your performing career. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And also it's uh, the concentration and yet you have to put in all the preparation so that you know all that stuff, all the technique that's there, and then so that you can let it go. So that at the top of a race, when they say, et vous prêt, partez, it just all drops in. Just like before a performance, you might have thought about, you know, your, uh, through line in this scene, you know, you're this, you're that, you know, how big a theater it is, how much you need to project, how much you, you know, all that goes and 
it just becomes step out onto the ice because I also was a speed skater. <laughs> I don't use that analogy. You step out onto the ice and it's just, and then you're off. You know, it's a very, in fact, in at UC, at uh, University of Washington, it's the, the Seattle training program. The, one of the best things that happened to me was studying with Craig Turner, who was a sensei and he had studied with uh, somebody really big in the Jacques Lecoq school of uh, neutral mask and mask work and along the lines of what you're saying uh very interesting discipline in movement where you take away the ego and you let your body become an instrument and you rid yourself of all those like you know california idiosyncrasies and things so that you can be neutral optimistic and available neutral but uh, so that you can take on characters like you know, the various amazing characters in, in Star Trek, for instance, which is the way, you know, I'm not surprised they take theater people because Shakespeare, classics, training, you know, all that stuff is uh, really integral. In fact, I had, a, um, I, I used to teach when I got out, when I came back from um, New York to be out here in LA and I was doing uh, time out here with mom, uh, when I came, left my theater job to take care of uh, her because she has Alzheimer's. I was doing some teaching in neutral mask work. And Jacques Lecoq, who uh, originated the work, is uh, has been very integral to um, a lot of people. And it's freeing because we splash this up here. And this is what, you know, we see this. Ah, and then you take that away. And it's like, what's this really saying? So unless you're like... Whew, fully committed to what you're doing and it's so interesting because star trek i mean so many of those people were in so much layers and layers and layers of makeup but she's they read so it's their whole body reading like i think of armin shimmerman you know and people like that that you know you read the whole thing not just you know what that was doing anyway i digress go ahead oh no i mean it kind of reminded me when you pull that thing out i was like is that odo i'm staring at right now it's just like that <laughs> i wonder how much of that was an influence on the, that design but no, that was a great explanation, actually. or something that is definitely going to be relevant later on in our Star Trek discussion. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk a little more about your theater work here, because you know I, I think most of your career, or at least a lot of it, has been in the theater more so than on film and on screen. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I'd love to hear if you remember what your very first gig was, your first professional gig in theater, uh, substantial. Let's let's leave it at that substantial role, maybe, and uh, what you learned from that time on stage. I would say, uh, well, I was still in training at University of Washington in the summertime. Uh, I had a chance to work in, actually, in even in Santa Barbara, I did a summer with the first, one of the first women's theater companies, Theater Process Theater. And we did Bernarda Alba, and we did original shows, The Pits. It was like a 20s version of a, a What Happens Backstage at the, the vaudeville shows and a lot of original improv stuff. And so I had a body of work be, be, before coming to Ashland, but I did Utah Shakespeare Festival and Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And Jerry Turner from Ashland had seen me in that. And uh, by the time I got to my third year at uh, University of Washington, I was. And in fact, the first year we were in UW, Bob Hobbs asked you to write down what you're going to be doing in three years. And I said, I want to work at Ashland. I really do. And then that blessedly came true because uh, I got to leave school early, actually, and come down to three leads. Uh, Mistress Quickly, uh, Wild Oats, I believe. No, uh, and uh, Juno the Peacock, the daughter, and Mistress Mistress Quickly, Juno the Peacock, 
well, somewhere in there, I don't know if I think it was the second season, I did Amelia and Othello, which was, I'll just say that was like a oh, mm. big turning point um, because they have an outdoor theater, an indoor theater, and a little black box theater. And quarter of a million people come through there a year. People, Some people don't realize that, but it was a wonderful training ground because I remember Sheila Allen, who came over with the Royal Shakespeare Company, she's going, you know, you're not going to be coming into your own until you're 30, 35. Get work get a place where you can do leads now you know and get out there and, and work and before you go to new york and then you get just put in places where all your it's going to be slimmer you know and she was right so i uh had two seasons out there at ashland and um i think amelia and othello because all it, i had a lot of exposure to shakespeare and i loved it i still do and i throughout my career did a lot of it and it's so freeing. I don't know. It's the confines of the verse and everything else. Once you get all that technically down and then you let it go, he's given you these parameters to stay within so that you've shuttered the choices way, way, way down here because the actual storylines are so huge. The greed, the drama, the you know, envy, the, you know, all the basic, you know, things of life are, are in there. And, um, uh, yeah, Othello was a big one. All the ones. It, it was again. It was a, an ensemble of people who were working together for a season, and that's always drawn me because you can trust each other right away, and it's wonderful. And so that was um, a wonderful leg up. And then I had made the decision to move to New York because I knew theater was a calling, and then became the world of mm, you got to learn to do some side gigs till I get you know hustle. <laughs> um, Hustle side hustles. And fortunately, I'd learned to type. And a friend of mine taught me how to bartend. And um, that was wonderful. Um, but I didn't, fortunately, I didn't have to wait too long because I got, uh, actually, when I was in my lab, but when I was at University of Washington, a lot of casting directors came and directed shows. And Jim Nicola at the Public Theater, Joe Papps Theater in New York City, uh, had been there and he was in my corner, I know, rooting for me. But Rosemary Tischler, the casting director there, Valdez, she looked after, I did several shows through the public theater and it hosted so many, James Cromwell, Jimmy Smith. I mean, just the list would go, go on forever. And I'm sure like three quarters of them have done uh, Star Trek. But that was, uh, I was doing my first role, my first co equity contract was mm -hmm. uh to fill in on and then understudy in and the Antigone, I didn't get to under, to uh, really go in and um, audition for the actual cast. But I later they cast the understudies, and that was my first really big mind blowing experience because they had gone through a few Antigones. Joseph Chaikin was directing. Don't know if you know him. He was all about process and probably because at five years old, he was told he was going to probably not live very long. He had a heart condition. So he was always about process. And this man, um, I was told mm, about three hours before going on that I was going to go on for Antigone with F. Murray Abraham of Amadeus playing Creon. And she had a wisdom tooth emergency and I had to go on. And I got to go in there and I was up on it. I was ready. And halfway through the performance, F. Marie Abraham 
we were supposed to be sharing the stage and he, he was supposed to be upstage and I was like downstage looking up at him. He looks in my eyes and he little twinkle and he says, okay, you're doing good. You're doing, you know, that's that simultaneous thing that's going on while you're doing the show, you know, and he just starts drifting downstage, forcing me to kind of counter and he's saying, take it, take it. And this was a big, huge diatribe that she uh, has. And uh, that was exhilarating. It was wonderful. And I got to do quite a bit of that. And and then later, Joseph Chaikin had really wonderful things to say. And so that was my introduction to the public. And they were very good to me over many years, doing wonderful shows. I could go on and I won't. But um, important also in my career was uh, Actors Theatre of Louisville. They did a lot of new play festivals that people came from all over the world to see and uh, everything from bass fishing tournament women winners to one we took to New York, which was about the women nurses who served in Vietnam, you know, and you pull from that, like a, the siege of AR 558 and Star Trek, you know, it, little, oh, yeah, you know, some, it all, it all, you know, kind of feeds one another. And one of, I had done Rosalind a couple of times in, in the, as you like it, but that was my favorite time I did Rosalind. And, um, a lot of things at Louisville. Anyway, I digress. I did theater all over the country. As Folger, you know, Shakespeare. Yeah, I did tons and tons of uh, Shakespeare to the point where I did become, I began trying to become more discerning. Hmm. You kind of have to ask yourself, do you want to do it because of the, the literature, the piece, the director, the cast who's going to be in it? Or is it some place you really want to be? Is it the money? Um Unless you can say yes to a few of those things, you know, you're really questioning, why am I doing this? You can't just like, once you start establishing yourself in theater, you can't just, you know, at the beginning, you're just kind of like going, oh, thank you, a chance to work, you know, and then after a while, you kind of go, what do I need to be doing right now in my life? Yeah, this is some real great info, too, for any budding actors out there. It's some good stuff for them to know. And, you know, I picked up on something you said earlier about something someone told you, in fact, which is about you getting out there and getting out in the world and working, getting roles. And I feel like, you know, especially you as a creative person, not just in performing, but in visual arts, I think one of the biggest hurdles for folks who do anything like this, anything creative, is essentially the fear of making something, the fear of rejection. And then, therefore, they're not going to do the thing that could get them rejected and get that anxiety, you know? Uh, and so, you know, I'm kind of wondering how we tie that together, I guess, to what you're doing here. But yeah, that's just something, you know, I, I feel like it's very important. And you kind of learned at a young age just to get out there and not worry as much and just make the mistakes, do the work and learn from that. Yeah. I mean, I was blessed to be from a family of parents that said, you know, unconditional love and go out there and do anything. We'll be behind you no matter what you do. And that was lovely. And but being an oversensitive person, a little bit too much in the head, sometimes you do kind of become your own enemy if you're not careful. I learned early on and was reminded of it in at University of Washington, particularly uh, that for me, I needed to be physically active and have some sort of sport. I mean, I grew up with surfboards and, you know, things that were centering and whether it's walks, jogging, you know mask work yoga whatever it is that's you know be around nature you know have a whole self to draw on because ultimately if as an artist if you don't have anything to say you're not going to have anything to say unless you are synthesized with you know happy with your being and have a spiritual self and 
all that. I don't know. I think didn't answer your question. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think we're getting somewhere with it, though. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, as a performer, do you feel like when you take on roles, you take a little bit too much of them into yourself? Do you kind of get lost in them a little bit, maybe? Hmm. Only, well, I haven't had the experience of like the amazing actors who've had, you know, uh, they're playing, you know, John Gacy or some serial killer for, you know, months and months and months on a film, you know, that they might have a, more of a tendency to do that. But um, I mean, I've played some pretty heavy stuff and it can be, uh, once you start performing eight shows a week for months at a time, it can be that you're living in that world so much, you're kind of getting, you know, dragged down a little bit, you know, and you have to kind of remind yourself, but um, one amazing opportunity I had was to do wit, which was uh, written by um, the Pulitzer prize winner, Margaret Edson. And it was about a woman with cancer. Emma Thompson did it, did a film version of it, I believe. So pretty much a one woman show in terms of the, uh, most of the, the verbiage, the language. This woman is a John Dunn scholar and she's found herself on an island. No man is an island. It was John Dunn. Um, and she has always lived not needing anybody. And she gets this excruciating stage four ovarian cancer. And she's surrounded by an ensemble in the theater version of wonderful actors particularly the doctor and the nurse. I had wonderful actors around me. Um, and it's a, without an intermission, and you, I, we happened to do it at Denver Center Theater, which I was a resident company member for seven years in the round. So you're surrounded by people, about 600 seat audience, and um, that are all playing through their minds about their cancerous experience, you know, the cancer people they've known and loved and whatever. And it becomes, and she's, to the end, so stoic and not needing anyone. And she submits herself to this sort of trial. And it's the little nurse who winds up, and not little, but she's the sweet nurse who comes up near the end when she's becoming, I mean, there've been scenes where she's just like excruciating pain. It's just the, the, the nurses that I researched with it were describing it just like someone taking a hammer to your bones, mm. that kind of pain. And this nurse comes up and there she's just finally been exhausted by this one bout of, of pain and got all medicated. And the nurse comes around with popsicles and she shares this moment where she says, you want a popsicle? And she says, yes. And she has this moment where she says, you know, you don't have to keep going. This is asking a lot of you. And if you ever decide not to, you can become DNR. And she takes it in and they just have this little sweet scene sharing a popsicle. And in the very end of the play, it is that nurse who winds up coming uh, around when she does decide to, to go, you know, to transition. And everyone comes in with the paddles and the shock, you know, the crash cart and trying to get her And the nurse comes in going, no, 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 she's DNR, she's DNR. She signed a DNR eventually. And it's at that moment that Margaret Edson wrote this incredible scene where the person um, winds up on, you know, after being on the table, she's been in this, uh, you know, hospital gown tied to a IV pole the whole show. And she just, after she, they were sitting there on the, you know, trying to get her, you know, shock her back to life and everything. And they are unable to, 
the person on the you know bed comes up and she's able to finally see and yield to all these people and be grateful in a state of real great gratitude for all these people that gave to her and blessed her and she um little by little she takes off the accoutrements she just you know takes of the port off from the you know iv off and she's looking around she's looking at the doctor who just wanted her for that research so much and forgives 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 and goes you know and goes around so finally at the very end she off comes the bracelet the gown you know is coming down here and the very last moment she looks and then she's going to the light and just as she goes to the light the her you know skull cap and gown everything drops off so she's just absolutely and oh, that was something that i had a problem taking home with me <laughs> <laughs> a little bit there were people because they w- would stay in the um not because of me but because the whole event and the, the writing and the the whole ensemble were very moved and they'd stay in their seats crying and stuff you know, for very many, you know, minutes after. And um, they, anyway, the, the point of what I was trying to answer your question, I had to get a, a really needed body work and, and would get real deep tissue massage every week to get that toxins, the toxins out of my body. It was so, you were taking in so much mm. In fact, one night there was a woman, you're so in tune in a show like that where it's so palpable, this work that you're doing. And the, um, someone flickered out of the back of my just soul. And I turned around in the theater and around and I felt a pre- it was dark out there, but I felt like something was happening. And I just sort of went, are you OK? And this uh, man said, uh, I think my wife is having a, a heart attack. And there's. God Mike came on and the stage managers like bringing up the lights slowly. And I, we got out of, you know, I've never done that in my life, you know, break character, come and break a show. And there she was, um, you know, in, in serious cardiac arrest and they brought up the lights and, and there was, a, you know, the, the weird announcement, you know, is there really a doctor in the house? And, and so there was, and he came and the paramedics came and, um, Later, I got letters from them, you know, saying, I, I was like, that's the grace of God. That, that's that's not me. That was something that was, you know, untold over a bunch of people being together doing, you know, work where there's energy. Yeah, that is a heavy role. I'm glad you described the whole thing, too, for folks who might not be familiar. That is some heavy stuff. That's a lot of weight to put on your shoulders and something that you clearly took a lot of physical weight. I mean, it sounds like you still have a little bit of that weight, too. Like you're still dealing with essentially the trauma of playing a character like that. And those things don't always just go away. It was... uh a gift because that gave me a new understanding. I even shaved my head for the role actually. Um, and then you'd walk around town in Denver, you know, people are looking at you like, oh, you know, and I was like, Oh no, I don't have cancer. I, you know, I don't want to be fake, you know, but my husband uh, is just fighting, winning his battle with lung cancer. Things happen, you know, which is anyway, also news. Yeah. So congratulations. On a lighter note. Keep fighting hard. So and that, let's jump over now to uh, when you shifted over to Hollywood for a bit. So, uh, you know, according to IMDb, he did a bunch of things in the same year. And uh, I think the one I want to focus on would be Nixon in 1995, which starred Anthony Hopkins, Joan Allen, David Hyde Pierce, Paul Servino. You got Madeline Kahn. I mean, you've got a lot of big heavy hitters in this film here. E.G. Humphrey, E.G. Humphrey, 81 years old. Yeah. And yeah, you got a lot of big folks here. And you're in this film playing Happy Rockefeller, who is the wife of Vice President Nelson Rockefeller, who's played by Edward Herman. Uh, so, again, this is like your first, I imagine your first major film in Hollywood, and it's a pretty huge one to be a part of. 
So what was it like for you to transition from the stage into this crazy giant world of production? And uh, what do you remember about working on that film? Um, I came out to Hollywood because my dad had passed along and transitioned. Hi, dad. Uh, and my mom was alone. So I wanted to be out on this coast. And I actually did have a couple of films before that. The IMBD is not, I have to go in there and figure out how to, you probably do too. They don't have nearly the stuff I've done on there, but uh, anyway. in the case, yeah, there's always something wrong or something you weren't in that they're now crediting you for. Yeah. But uh, that was an interesting one because there's this wonderful casting director, Mary Bernou. Um, she had me come in for it and uh, she had me go into the set where um, Oliver Stone was filming some stuff and to meet him in between takes for this role. And I, it was last minute. I hadn't had a chance to do a lot of research. And I stepped up to him and I was, I can be nothing if not honest about myself. I have to be real. I, <laughs> I put my foot in it. I met him and I, I was so struck by how much he looked like a friend of mine, J.D. Johnston, who's a wonderful character actor, and just a lot of Westerns. And I just went, wow, uh, you, I mean, do you know J.D. Johnston? You're just like, his doppelganger, he's like, wow. And he goes, ah, oh, the same sounds familiar, but no, I don't know. It's just like this horse-faced, wonderful character actor that, and then, Stone turns to his assistant and says, did you hear that? I, I look like a, sto- a, a horse-faced uh, character actor of hers. It's a friend. <laughs> no, 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 I don't mean that. I just mean, you know, I just went, oh, God, this is like going nowhere. <laughs> so I was just me in that interview. I w- hadn't researched Hap Rockefeller, and he passed on me. Mary Vernu called me that even the next day, probably, and said, look, I went into him at over dinner and showing you all, you know, and I went, and he goes, bring me some tape, bring me some more tape. And he was that thorough on every, you know, in the film, you know, like that long of a person, but he, that's how thorough he is in detail with every character. Well, she brought me in and had me on tape the next afternoon. So all morning I'd been at the library going through microfiche. I don't remember, know what that is <laughs> and reading and reading in newspaper articles about Cap Rockefeller and I went oh I know this woman is so I went in with my little black sheath 60s you know white pearls but my you know hair my smile my sensibilities I love horses I improv I mean on this tape that she you know and I said oh my gosh my husband just giving me this you know and I knew the names of her horses and how much it went to her and it was just wonderful fun to be her on this tape and he went I don't need to see anymore. That's her over dinner. Why is her looking at the tape? You know, and I'd been there the day before being, you know, me, but it's funny. So I had a grand time because that was out. We were filming in Pasadena and it was, that scene was mainly in the, everybody in the show was in that because it was, he was doing it as a circular kind of long pan shoot. So even if you had zeroing in on Nixon talking to, you know, people over here, everybody else was still going on and, um, so I had a lot of time sitting out on the, oh, in fact, um, uh, Paul Servino, what we were in the, you know, the little director's chairs for you while you're sitting there on set. And he was, um, very enamored of Star Trek. Yeah. And he, someone else had come up who was bringing, he was picking up sides or something from the, for the next day's shoot or something like that. And he had been on Star Trek a lot. I mean, he's a, a Latin American actor. I forget his name, but 
Paul Servino went, oh my gosh. And he got up and he went over and he, oh gosh, my grandson, could you, could you autograph this for me? I am a huge Star Trek fan. I give you da 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 like this. It was so cute to see him. He was playing Kissinger, I think. Yep. And did he ever do a Star Trek? Paul Servino did. Yeah. He was uh, Worf's brother, in fact. Oh, whether well, he got his dream. Yeah. He got to play That's Worf's cool. brother, his Russian brother, not a Klingon brother. Um, oh. yeah, so that actually did happen. Yeah. And it's, it, yeah, I, I wish I could have interviewed him also. That would have been so great to chat with him about Star Trek, but it's so cool to hear like he was legitimately so into it. Oh yeah. And, and, um, uh, Anthony Hopkins was so humble. His ability to work on this show, he was able to go out between takes and just hang out and he'd go over to the fancy craft service table with all the nice you know, bakery goods and cookies and all this stuff. And he'd go over to the extras area and where they had a little bit less, you know, fancy stuff over there. And he'd bring all these cookies and cookies, you know, and give them, just take it around and share. And he'd also get a crew member had an electric piano because he's a classic pianist. And he'd just sit there with twigs and in between takes and sitting on jamming on this, you know, some amazing Beethoven thing or whatever. And then he'd get up and he'd kind of go, how am I doing? How am I doing? You know, like a Nixon <laughs> crass, you know, invitation. People like that, it, it heartens you because the celebrity in the United States sometimes gets a bad name because there's a lot of crassness. And the people in uh, who are devoted artists and actors are, you know, that we were family all over the, the you know, you'd go and you'd get on a show and you sit down at the first read and you look across the table and you go, Oh my gosh, I haven't seen you for 10 years. You know, we did a show and la la la. Everybody knows each other. And even in, you know, the, uh, it's a little bit less so in the film and television world, although it's a kind of different one over here. And so it's heartening to experience that and see such wonderful people who are, I've always had a penchant for seniors and I don't know why I might, Later on in life, I wound up doing a lot of caregiving for uh, Alzheimer's, people with, living with Alzheimer's, because my mom, I, I cared for her for 10 years. And um, E.G. Marshall was at an age sitting on that set. And I remember, I'm very shy. And I, I wouldn't um, talk to, you're very easy to talk to. But uh, I wouldn't go hang out with Oliver Stone over dinner at craft table, you know, and stuff like that. It was... But I remember him watching us because I would get E.G. Marshall was just a font of knowledge. And here he was in his early 80s and he was doing this, you know, he was playing Humphrey. And uh, he had, I've learned early on people of that age, I mean, any age or senior to you have stories. It's wise to listen, shut up and listen. <laughs> so I did. It was interesting. Anyway, from there, from our really deep story, I'm going to go to something a little more fun. Because uh, I want to talk to you about being in Mr. Bean, in the Mr. Bean movie. Because <laughs> I saw that, I found the clip. Yeah, we're going from Nixon to Mr. Bean, which is, I think, appropriate also. Um, <laughs> weirdly appropriate, but yeah, what is it like to work with Rowan Atkinson? That is a master of comedy right there. Oh my gosh, he is so amazing. For anyone who doesn't know, the, 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 the scene that I worked on was him coming in and being mistaken for the doctor. So he comes wandering in and these two nurses just go, oh, we've been waiting for you. And they, we had to work out this integral coming in, grabbing him, taking him out of his clothes, getting him into his gown, getting him into his gloves, getting him into all kind of a circular, putting him on a, pushing him on his way. 
to the surgery. And he's the whole time going, you know, and he uh, had to work it out meticulously. The t- you know, the tie, the this, the that. The, the, so we worked, man, I mean, hours and hours and hours figuring out the choreography of that to make it look just like. Yeah. And once he got in there, something happened when he was into the surgery room and some emergency happened in the other part of the hospital or something that called everyone out. And this guy is stretched out there on the table and he's looking and he's looking and he's, "Hmm," you know, "Hmm," and he's got these M&Ms and he never dropped every through, even through the getting changed, his his clothes changed, (laughs) flipping them up and he's catching them in his mouth. He's looking at this guy on the table and he flips it up and one of the M&Ms drops in the guy's chest and he's going, Oh, so anyway, gets in there, bubbles around. You can imagine him doing an amazing bit of finding not only the M&M, but the, I think it was all, both of them, but the bullet yep. casing. And everyone comes in and they go, oh my gosh, you found it. Ah, you know, hence him becoming that amazing doctor. Well, he, of course, long, one take kind of mm, really amazing, uh, you know, amazing shooting on that scene. And he would drop back after every take and next to the director and just look at the, you know, um, take. And he would be going, you know, very serious. He got very, this was the Rowan Atkinson that people don't see. Hmm. I see. And it was just like, oh, I was looking over there going, whoa. Because he was very, you know, and he's talking about, you know, and then he would just, you know, grab that being character again to do another take but he was very you know much a um craftsman artist what needed to happen you know this that and the other and would discuss and and then i remember there was uh one of the guys that were plant were um new to any kind of uh acting or filmed them or anything and he was an extra that was just kind of like walking past you know as, as soon as the cameras were rolling he was you know walking past people were before we started the whole thing and he we did the 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 ultimate no-no which was you know here you are ready to do your bit as an extra and you're going to talk to the principal who has to keep all this stuff in his head and ready to go so you know i would say probably not want to disturb him but this kid goes i just can't amazing at me how you do what you do and it's like you know you really have it and ron atkinson just kind of Answered him, answered him, and then he answered him, and then he went. And I was like, oh my gosh, what, uh, you know, presence of mind and uh, truly a brilliant, brilliant guy. Yeah, that was, that was a hoot. It kind of sounds like, One, you know, it reminds me almost of like Jerry Lewis, because I, I hear he'd do the same thing. Like, you know, he's so wacky on set, but then in between takes, and he was one of the first guys to pioneer this. In fact, you know, he would watch back what he did. He would do playback change things up on the fly like that's that's pretty interesting and it, it makes sense because you know for rowan atkinson there's so much timing in what he does and timing is like what makes it more funny it's not just his little beanisms but it really is like yeah. the timing of everything around him the synchronization of all those elements coming together it's so economical i mean yeah. just precision and lucia ball too was apparently yeah. that way just like you know and you'd think it was just flying around you know and and no she was a scientist you know that was fun. That was a fun one. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is sponsored by Triple Fiction Productions. 
Celebrating 15 years in business in 2023, TFP creates 3D printed Star Trek and sci-fi inspired items that fit into any collection. Whether you're a cosplayer who wants a Starfleet phaser, a Bajoran tricorder, or a Klingon dagger, or a toy collector looking for that special accessory or diorama to make your figures truly stand out, Triple Fiction Productions has exactly what you need. And for you figure fanatics, that includes products that are the perfect size for Galoob, Nego, Playmates, and everything in between. All products are 3D printed in the U.S., with new designs constantly being updated on their website. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, which is a great way to save money as you build your collection. Repeat customers can sign up for TFP's loyalty program for free, where the more you order, the more discounts you receive. TFP also has a pay what you want section, where clearance or misprinted items are available at a discounted price. Best of all, every product can be shipped worldwide. As a special bonus for listeners of this show, Trek Untold has a special discount code just for you. Enter UNTOLD10 at checkout for 10% off of all orders with no minimum purchase required. That's 10% off using UNTOLD10. To see all of their products, head to triple-fictionproductions.net. Or to stay up to date on their newest products, find them on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Triple Fiction Productions, where something is only impossible until it happens. Are you looking for the perfect fashion statement to show you're a geek and proud of it? Well, welcome to Geek Girls Castle, where I make fun and functional geeky clothing and accessories for every occasion. My name is Missy, and I started creating my own gear and apparel in 2015 to bring nerdy products to the geek girl population, which does include all LGBTQA+, non-binary, and POC and BIPOC folks. I couldn't find anything for us gals except t-shirts, so I decided to combine my passion for fashion with my fandoms, ranging from handmade skirts with really large pockets, travel accessories like toiletry bags, luggage tags, and zippered pouches. I also embroider nerdy items for home decor like wall hangings and hand towels, and products like keychains, bookmarks, and journal covers. Need something to carry all that in? Well, I make great bags to put all those accessories into or onto. Whether you like Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who, Marvel, DC, and everything else in between, there is something for every geek girl. My website is constantly updated with new styles and fandoms, no matter what time or dimension you come from. If you'd like to browse my products or ask for something custom, visit me at geekgirlscastle.com. That's geekgirlscastle.com. All right, so Annette, let's beam into our Star Trek discussion right now. And you've got five different roles across the Star Trek universe. That is a lot to break down. So let's start at the very beginning, which from what I hear is a very good place to start. Uh, and that would be DS9, Season 3. The episode is Visionary, and you're a Romulan named Karina. So how did you get cast for that role? And did you know that it was Star Trek going into it? Yes, and I had just uh, come out from um, New York I did a show down at the Old Globe in San Diego, and I decided it was time to move near my mom and do the film and television stuff, even though I was ancient by that time and by the LA standards. But again, as a character actor, you know, you're going, you're not going against the youngsters. So I was, uh, let's see. The smaller agency, I, I loved them, but uh, they were, Anyway, they um, got me this audition, and I knew it was Star Trek. It was on Paramount Lot, and I thought it had gone pretty well. They, 
I was made aware that they uh, had an appreciation for people who had done a lot of Shakespeare. And I could tell because the verbiage in that, uh, as a Romulan, in that visionary was really mouthfuls. I mean, very dense dialogue. Very dense dialogue. And so I didn't, hadn't known, I think I got a call back. And then I was waiting to hear. But at the time, I was, um, I'm not going to lie, <laughs> I was brushing up my bartending skills. She sheds Benitez. <laughs> um, and I was at the uh, uh, ABC bartending school going through one of their, they have all these stations and you're learning to make like 13 drinks in, you know, side of a minute and a half. And I was going, oh my gosh, do I really want to dab my foot in this again? You know, it was just like, uh, get yourself backed up in it. You, you want to be able to have something with a flexible schedule that, you know, so you don't have to say yes to everything. Okay. Okay. Lord, I'm, I'm there. And then I got a call the first day I was going back and hitting that, that I'd gotten the Star Trek gig. My fr- it was my first gig in, in uh, LA and it was a guest spot on, on Beach Race. And I was so thankful. And I was just like, yes. And it was thrilling and it was fun because it was one of those that you had to get there at like three in the morning or not. let's see, 3.30 to, I, I would always arrive about half an hour before my call for a, like a sit in the ch- makeup chair at 4 a.m till seven just getting the makeup on and um rehearsal then and uh with wonderful people and Shearer Jack Shearer I think was the other Romulan guy and uh they couldn't be nicer uh it was a wonderful group of people I couldn't believe that you know what I mean one episode it was like a 10-day shoot and you're working from like like I said you're 3 30 in the morning till about it was like 9 10 at night sometimes and uh that, I thought, oh, you guys are really earning your money. <laughs> and I mean, it talk was, me about uh, that makeup process, too. Because, I mean, you're sitting in that chair for three hours, you said, right? So what what is that like? Was, Have you ever done prosthetics like that before? Not like that. I had done some more uh, with wigging and things like that, that um, more elaborate wigs and spirit gum and all that stuff. But this stuff was uh, really elaborate. And to be did Romulan and all that stuff. And um, yeah, that was severe. But fortunately, the makeup trailers are full of, you know, I find that um, makeup artists are just always fascinating. They're fun to listen to. They have a little gig going up their own. They're just, you know, they banter. They they have it down. So, you know, they're having a great time. And they and the regulars who come in and out are comfortable. They're, you know, that's the luxury of being a regular on a show is that you're comfortable, you know, you're the day player coming in for a guest spot and you're going, I'm going to act like I'm not nervous, but <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> but uh, quickly became, you know, invited in and embraced as a family. Yeah, very special. But yeah, but no, no, yeah, no, no question about it. Sitting there in those high makeup. I don't know how Michael uh, Dorn, is that his name that did the Klingon? Yep. Yeah, all those years. And I think he actually had some, you know, problems over the years with, uh, you know, the, just the, the lasting damage it can do to you and yeah. stuff like that. But, yeah, it was, uh, that was probably the most severe makeup. Although, frankly, when I did later, I did this Voyager thing and um, it was a new alien and it took almost as long, even though there were less prosthetics and things really ugly <laughs> like it, 
but it, because Michael Westmore came down and he was inventing it. So he was doing airbrushing of these spots and all this stuff, um, kind of creating as he went. And that was, that took about a long, as long, but the, uh, and then the continuity, that, that's big time, you know, every day for, you know, nine days to have those makeup artists, they're constantly doing the, you know, for the Polaroids and all that stuff and touching up in between and all that. And they have, they're a, a wonderful asset to that ensemble of people who work on that. And we should add to you, not only are you wearing the giant makeup, you're also wearing the giant Romulan shoulder pads, which tell me, okay, I can see your face right now. You remember them pretty clearly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was hot and they're stiff and. Uh, they're stoic people anyway. And, um, you know, we've been directed to, you know, let it allow that to be, you know, it, it, you know, as an actor, you're kind of thinking, this seems very, you know, you know, stiff, (laughs) but, um, and you kind of settle into this, uh, superior sort of, you know, Romulan attitude and, uh, it was befitting, you know, it, it kind of let you to, uh, just the way a course it does in certain Shakespearean, you know, uh, roles in theater, uh, the, the, the costumes of a Romulan lent itself to that sort of um, personality. So in this episode, you get to spend a lot of time working on screen with Nana Visitor and Avery Brooks. Uh, what do you remember about those two as scene partners? Oh, man. Nana Visitor is, uh, she's tough, you know, she's really... Uh, she's a wonderful opponent, you know, and, and those scenes were, um, like I said, you know, the Romulans being all that superior attitude kind of coming at them and they just kept pressing and pressing and wanting more information and unreal, uh, you know, unrealistic expectations from the Starfleet's, uh, you know, point of view and, and Avery's, um, I got to work with him later on, uh, the siege of AR-558, but he was, his, he's, he's kind of kicked back strength. He's like, you're not pushing me around, but I'm, I'm cool. I'm here. I'm there. And we'll see. And, uh, so, but it was, it was fun getting to be a Romulan. <laughs> it was just, and it was so much fun just having all those special effects around just, you know, and parting as you walk through and, um, but visitor. Yeah. She's really, uh, wonderful. Cause she's, I, I've seen the other stuff that, you know, other episodes she's done and things and, and she's, She's funny. She's, she's just a whole ball of works, but particularly uh, she was real feisty in that one. Good, you know, in your face kind of. Um, and, and I'm, you know, a much more uh, reluctant person. I mean, I mean, I'm much more on the back foot kind of person. And um, to play those kind of roles like that, it's a it's a fun challenge. I'm curious here, and, you know, you don't have to be like a crazy hardcore Trekkie to be into this, but like, were you watching any of the modern Star Treks in that era? Not a whole lot because I had been trying busily to make my way as an actor, um, just gig to gig, you know, uh, for the last, you know, 10, 15 years before that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it didn't afford you a lot of time. You didn't, I didn't, uh, but it was later in life that really I caught up on a lot more. Okay. And, and of course, once I started auditioning for things and um, becoming a part of the family that I went, you know, kind of immersed myself back in. And, but no, most of my exposure had been with the, um, you know, the early days of the, uh, the, what were those things called? The, the little gerbil, the verbals, the, the gerbils, they're just, <laughs> those things. I mean, they captured my attention from the get go. I was, uh, already, uh, um, but I loved, but I had seen a lot, it, like 
I loved Shimmerman's character, the chess games, the, um, I loved the bar, you know, the, the, I would love the, the way that they would go and to use their, um, their rec time and relaxation, to, you know, it's, it was all wonderful. Well, my questioning is basically because I wanted to ask if you had actually watched your episodes when they first aired or had, I mean, oh, I, I know you've watched oh. them, but did you watch them back when they first aired? No, 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 no. no. Uh, I, I'm, I'll, I'll take, uh, uh, I'm with Robert De Niro on that. I, I try to watch my stuff as, as little as possible because in your head, you have one idea of how it seems. And it's just like as a theater actor. I mean, I don't care if it was off, off Broadway or on Broadway. As soon as you read a review, even if it said something about, you know, oh, how wonderful that scene was. And when she came through those red doors and she clasped her, you know, uh, person and it all came tumbling down onto the floor you never knew and you went you can't come up to that kind of a specific scene again without that being in your head yeah it's just sort of like you can't remove can't unsee it and uh some people have a no problem reading reviews and uh i'm i'm not one of them i i i'm pretty uh i'm kind of a vulnerable person and so when i see myself if i'm like and then I had to, you know, eventually get tape and show it to your agent and show it to other people and that kind of stuff and have somebody do a demo for you and all that. And so the first few times it's really hard. And um, I don't know if even making your documentaries, maybe you, you had more distance because it wasn't you on the camera, but for yourself on the camera, it's just, I don't know, it's pretty rough. It's hard. I, I can appreciate though the editing and the whole picture and the whole story more once I get to see it all in a, in a, yeah you know, story. And, and, and then having watched it a bunch of times, then I can go, now I can go back and it's not so, not so rough. I can go, Oh, that was cool. How they did that or that or that. You know? I mean, like there was one, we were doing um, scientific method on Voyager. And I remember Kate Mulgrew going, okay, this you're going to love. Because we were at the end doing this chicken, we were kind of playing chicken with a binary pulsar on the back, and um, captain's whatever that thing is called. And she, so she goes, so when the when the ship starts breaking apart, we're gonna go like this. <laughs> and they're gonna shake everything, and by golly, we did. We were like going. <laughs> and I thought for all this high tech stuff, you know, your kids in the backyard again doing, you know. Ooh, now we're going to do this, you know, <laughs> which was delightful. It was fun. So from your time on DS9, you then jump over to the Enterprise for a little bit because your next appearance chronologically is in Star Trek First Contact. This is the second TNG movie. Oh, yeah. And uh, also your first time putting on a Starfleet uniform. So how was it to put on that uniform for the first time? And more importantly, how tight and constrictive was that thing to wear? <laughs> Very. <laughs> Very. Although for the women, they always had this kind of like place for your undergarments. You're always kind of the same proportion as, as other Starfleet members, I find, you know. How convenient. <laughs> There's not a lot of room for <laughs> different body shapes, I think. I think that later changed. But um, there was, uh, uh, I got to uh, come on board much after the whole film had been made. I, I'm in very little of it. But it was after I was doing the first CD-ROM. Um, with Jonathan Frakes yeah. and I was playing this Klingon spy that he had said, Oh, he came in one day and he goes, I, I, I guess my movie's kind of a, you know, it's making a good impression. And I'm kind of, you know, they said I can, you know, shoot some more fill in stuff on it. And uh, anybody, you guys want to be in that? And 
<laughs> so we're like, yeah. And he goes, well, we need some more filling on, you know, some, you know, Starfleet members being Borgs and this kind of thing. And he goes, you'd be good at that. Or you'd be good, you know. And he kind of invited us to to come in and and work on in in that way, which was fabulous. And it was again in the makeup chair and becoming, you know, with those metal pieces on your face and becoming a Borg and. Um, but there wasn't a lot of backstory and a lot of depth of, you know, uh, arc, arc to your, you know, characters and such. It was more, like you said, you know, kind of fill in from here to there. But Jonathan Frakes, see, just to be around that set and the workings and all that stuff was so cool. And even working that CD-ROM was, um, he was quite provincial, the first one in, and it was kind of, you know, they weren't really smooth and suave on how they were getting in and out of things and but uh i really appreciated it because a funny thing happened um while we were on the paramount set the guy playing the bartender we were in this like loser lounge you know kind of a deal it's uh, played by uh, mike haggerty yes he was the bartender right yeah or he the, was uh, the... in the barn in the Klingon game yeah okay so the guy first playing it was uh we were shooting it and he kept having discomfort and he kept going to the production assistant and, and requ- you know, requiring, requiring uh, aspirin. And finally the PA went up to Jonathan and said, man, this guy is like on his, you know, 24th aspirin. And I, I don't know, but check it out. Maybe you can talk to him and see what's going on. And, and Frank's, you know, he, we were all kind of around in the chairs and stuff. And he goes, Hey, I hear you're, you know, not feeling so well. And he goes, ah, no, it's gas, you know, I'm sure it'll pass. And he's going, no, 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 no. You just this is a game we're shooting a game this is your life this is your health this is you know there's a little hospital on paramount and he goes go over to the hospital and and get checked out because you're going to get paid you're going to get the dress you're going to get all whatever you need but you're more important your life is important here dude and so he did and meantime we got word back that oh it, they're kind of keeping him and holding him in there for a while and and having doctors come over and stuff and meantime he called up his uh friend and said hey you want to you know drop in and play this bartender in this gig it's not a you know terribly prestigious thing but it's uh first of its kind and meantime we got word back that the guy had been having a heart attack oh wow and there was jonathan frakes just going oh hold the phone here you know there's perspective that's what I always I always felt was present in, in all this world and family of, of Star Trek. And I just thought, man, kudos to you. You know, that was uh, very classy and wonderful. Yeah. So, yeah. The guy was well after that. You know, he did well. <laughs> that's good to hear. Yeah, I didn't realize that those two stories were tied together. Your, your time on Star Trek First Contact and technically the Star Trek Klingon video game came first. That's that's a really interesting little transition. Yeah. Jump from that. Literally, you're jumping from one set to the next, basically. Yeah, it was wow. really fun. It was cool. Yeah, and let's just talk actually about that Cleon game, in fact, because you know, I did find the footage of that also. I was able to find it. And uh, yeah, you got to work. You got to tell me about this because you're working with Robert O'Reilly. He's Galron. He's like one of the most famous Klingons in Star Trek. And you're not only are you working directly with him, you're singing Klingon opera while playing an alien xylophone. <laughs> That's a day. Like that, that mouthful right there is just something else. But you actually <laughs> lived it. So yeah, talk to me about what you did there because that's actually pretty, pretty interesting, pretty unique experience. I've been downsizing my house and I've been trying to, you know, get rid of a lot of things. And I ran across some little, t- uh, little cassette tape that I had of the Klingon opera, you know, <laughs> like trying to learn that thing. It was hard. It was really hard. And I think I forgot it as soon as I learned it just for that reason. <laughs> but, uh, but, it, you know, I mean, 
you, you know, it's what if is the big magical if in acting is like, you know, okay, what if you were a spy and you happen to be, you know, a, a, you know, this and that and the other, and these guys are trying to do that. And this thing. And, um, I, I don't really know that I had quite the uh, authentic backstory that I should have probably for that character. You know, <laughs> it wasn't that required, but uh, there was enough of, in fact, it, it was, so in that event, it was much more of a, um, in the moment, play off of each other's actors and 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 get live stuff going that's going to be credible and as you can in that weird hairdo and you know big makeup and you know things. <laughs> but it was uh, I don't remember that much about it except that that was you know it was fun being a spy and uh, they were all you know you're on set so long and everyone's in these crazy costumes and, and get-ups and stuff you know it is pretty normal after a while it's not like they it's just a shred and then there's ted and, you know oh yeah and you you're shorter you know <laughs> and then there's galron over there in the corner with his klingon makeup on yeah no big deal yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's really My, cool. um, it's a really fun it's a really fun game too just uh, and as far as playing it it's whatever it's a cd-rom game for the 90s but like watching the cinematics it is pretty fun just to sit there and, and watch all that now I never saw it. I never saw it. <laughs> uh, okay, I got to send you a link when we're done this interview. I'm going to give it to you, and I'll, I'll make sure to highlight the spot you're in so you can just watch that oh. one part again and again on loop. <laughs> oh, man, you want me to have nightmares? <laughs> no, it was fun, and I was uh, flattered to be invited to do it. Well, so that's uh, three of your things here, three of your times in Star Trek. We got a fourth also, and we already mentioned, uh, or rather, um, yeah, it's Voyager. We already mentioned a few times during the episode oh, Scientific yeah. Method. Uh, and so we talked a little bit about it already. We talked about the makeup. We talked about some of your space acting. Well, yeah, let's actually focus a bit on working with Kate Mulgrew. Uh, Cause I mean, that is a tour de force right there of a woman to work with. Yes. And I had met her earlier because I, um, back in New York city, I was working at the public on a show that her husband at the time, uh, they've since gone different directions, but Bob Egan was directing the ballad of Sophie Smith and uh, it was big, big Western based on the real guy. And it was, had a massive amount of incredible actors who were all edgy, wonderful actors. And we were there at opening night about uh, down there in the, the village and Kate had come out for the opening. And uh, so we were there at about three or four in the morning when the papers were staying up the whole time and she was waiting for the papers to come out and to read the post. And she went out, you know, and people were bringing in the post and New York, you know, times and all this stuff to get the, reviews and she just struck me uh as because we all came out of seattle and i knew bob egan from seattle and stuff like that and she was so strong and so forthright even then and uh yeah you know i won't go into the whole you know what the some reviews were good some weren't you know whatever but it was that 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 uh show will still go down in history just for the amazing cast and what transpired during that time but um she was a real tour de force just to be reckoned with as a human being and i later was uh thrilled to be working with her on set and i didn't belabor the point i mean again being you know i'm always very respectful of the regulars and the the, the plate the amount on their plate and bit what they have to do in car- carrying a scene so I don't initiate anything unless something triggers that they, she remembers having met me there or not. And I didn't really bring it up, but what was fun was just to have her being kind of, you know, 
corny in laughing about, you know, this binary pulse, playing chicken with a binary pulsar, you know, at this point in time, you know, and we're going to just like, <laughs> it was a matter of life and death and um, you have to sell that. And uh, while, you know, you're shaking the, the thing back and forth and they're kind of shaking the cameras. and um, But I love the fact that I got to be a match because as a, what are they called? Srivani, I think, were the alien and uh, they were so androgynous and we were all bound down and looking real weird with these weird hairdos. And um, once we became visible to them, because we were invisible doing experiments, and I'd be pissed too if I were, you know, they were going, oh no, there shouldn't be too many fatalities, you know, it's, uh, you know, but it's going to benefit all, it's going to all, you know, and in the one person that already died, I think there was a crew member who had died and people were, she was experiencing major headaches and all these people were losing their hair and all this stuff from their experiments. And, and she was basically going, get out, <laughs> get off my ship. And, but I got to be, you know, again, one of those superior kind of attitudes, you know, aliens that were just cycling. I don't think so. And then she's turning around going, so it was a great, you know, get to go do that with her was, was fun. And of course, you know, when you're looking at a binary pulsar coming into your view and you're about ready to, okay, you know, eat it or bite it or, you know, live and you're kind of going, okay, I'll disappear. (laughs) And we did. That was always, doing that green screen disappearing thing was kind of fun too. But yeah, she was, uh, oh, and then later getting to see her on uh, Orange is the New Black. Mm, yeah. what a magnificent part she plays on there i had a lot of friends on that show and she's um really great character on that yeah so that was a privilege yes now we should add at this point before we jump into your next role you know you basically have seen the enterprise e bridge you've been on the d space nine space station and you've been on voyager so uh you know this is a nerdy question here what was your favorite looking set to be part of which was the one that wowed you the most um I was in so much shock going into the first uh, uh, visionary taping. Just, nine, yeah. First, first, you know, first guest spot was Star Trek. I was sort of, and everything looked, you know, majestic and big and spaceshipy and you know all this stuff. And so that was pretty impressive. That was like impressive. But my favorite was the next one. You know, you might ask about is the the siege of AR fifty eight AR. Five five eight because it was down on that planet in those caverns mm. and stuff. So that that was kind of my favorite uh, set set. The, um, you kind of got used to looking at all the bells and whistles on the. You know, the more you did Star Trek, it was sort of like, oh yeah, this is a, a cool version of that, and this is a. You know, I always kind of thought like it would be uh, fun to have a house like this, you know. And but it, you know, when you're watching from you know my television screen and I'm looking at this stuff, they've got all the add-ins graphically afterwards. So it's looks even much more fancy dancing right there. You know, kind of, it's not quite dancing the way on the way it does on the, you know, a little bit less impressive, but that I love that AR five, five, eight. Yeah. Let's talk about that now. Cause that is your, your final appearance in the star Trek franchise for now. Uh, Siege of AR five, five, eight, seventh season episode DS nine. Uh, very memorable episode, one of my favorite episodes of the entire series. Uh, really? So yeah, yeah. I mean, we'll talk about why I think in a little bit, but you know, um, I'd really like to hear about the audition for this one. If you remember what you did to get this part. Well, funnily enough, that was after doing um, 
I think I mentioned earlier, I had done the show of uh, Peace of My Heart about the women who served in Vietnam and also having had friends who were close to war. Uh, in fact, my cousin was a nurse over there. And the grit, the because uh, it struck me as such an anti-war um, episode, the way I perceived it, it was just so gritty. And are you going to leave your, you know, brothers, you know, you can't leave them and uh, no man left behind and all that. And um, those, even now, you know, God, coming out of, I won't even get into that, all that, but um, pulling out of Afghanistan and who do you, you know, and people you leave behind. And um, so the people who are questioning whether or not they're going to have help from beyond. It was an interesting uh, dilemma because you still respect your commanders and yet you're uh, growing kind of bitter from the death around you of your brother. And, and Ray Cruz, who played in that, was so good. He was, uh, um, his character was even much more angry. And um, my Nadia Larkin, the lieutenant, was so much more, uh, she was trying to be much more uh, pragmatic and find a solution. And um, given him the, the laydown, you know, there's just, you know, the lowdown, it was like, hey, you know, we got nothing here. And uh, he was just a burning, simmering, simmering, you know, we got nothing here. You know, <laughs> he was a real low talker and real, but I remember, so it was easy to play off of people like that who are, because um, you're holding these weapons that are, uh, you know, ray guns, you know, kind of like, and it was sort of like, they're not like real, you know, AR, you know, 15s and stuff like that. And or I probably called that wrong. I don't know guns, but um, you're having to invest such commitment to make that a reality. And I, in getting killed and all that stuff, you know, it was, it was, uh, auditioning for it was, fun because you got to play a real um real scene you know real uh nitty-gritty mm. nitty-gritty i enjoyed it i was really glad i got it and um because that I, I could be much kind of more myself and just without any makeup and stuff just be a starfleet member and of that amazing ilk of you know repute and avery brooks being being in the trenches with him and uh yeah, talk about intimidating. Because now you know you did a scene with him back in Visionary, but this time around you're in a battle scene with him. So it's a different kind of setting, different kind of mood. I would imagine a different kind of Avery that you're working with also here. Yeah, he was really good in that because he was torn. You know, he was, um, and once he made the decision to go down and commit and help this group uh, uh, that needed help and were getting killed and off and all that, you know, he, you saw the kind of actor he would be in um, any number of other films and such, you know, let alone, you know, not that his, I mean, and is amazing in, in Star Trek as well, but you, it, it gave everyone a chance to be that uh, very realistic, you know, platoon, you know, moment in your <laughs> Star Trek world of, uh, and what it would be like, you know, if you're on some alien planet and, uh, you know, push come to shove, you know, it's uh, death and life and all that. So it was sad and fun and, you know, gritty. And I had to get over my, you know, uh, you know, being starstruck. <laughs> I had to get over, 
you know, I had to just, you know, okay, get over your shot, you know, slip into this role, do it, commit, go. And once you can you do, but it was really a privilege. I, I just loved the, um, the whole ambiance and the smog coming up and you, you know, we were walking along this ledge, uh, in this big cavern and stuff. And it was a really creative set and yeah, it's cool. Yeah, that's, that's why I'm actually surprised you said this is like your favorite set because it's such a dark, dim set and it is just essentially a cavern. But I mean, it sounds like you got to do a lot of things in that cavern that you didn't really get to do in the other episodes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, you know, real. Uh, I mean, who doesn't like It's like being <laughs> 12 years old again. I don't know, more like about 10. I got my mom would make my brother take us to the field in back of our house and play you know army in the yeah. mud and the um you know throwing grenades and you know and playing army you know just playing cowboys and indians playing get them you know you know get you i mean that's kind of where our child and, and if you can be that childhood commitment and wonder and immerse yourself in that thing again it's uh you tell the story with a lot of you get you hopefully you know bring people in you know yeah. you mark them on the edge of their seat and you can't do that without really committing. So and it's a much more physical role than anything else you've done in Star Trek too. Cause you are running around having shootouts with the Gem Hadar. So, I mean, you, and that's the thing I imagine that appeals to you a lot more too, since you talked about, you know, the athletics being a part of your life. I mean, this is a yeah. real, uh, this is a real net held role right here. Yeah, absolutely. That was de- right up my alley. Cause I mean, I've done a lot of physical, um, played a lot of like a stunt pilot, you know, and, uh, bass fisherwoman, uh, you know, a lot of my roles, a lot, all, lot, three or four of the Shakespeare heroines, the pants roles, you know, Viola and um, Rosalind and, you know, a lot of the pants roles in Shakespeare and being tall and athletic and stuff. Yeah, it was my, my, right at my milieu, you know, it was, uh, it was a wonderful privilege to do. And you have to work with a lot of cool people, as we already mentioned. There's the regulars. Yes, we already know about all the folks who are normally in Star Trek episodes. But, you know, you had now with you, as you mentioned already, Raymond Cruz. He was with you there. Uh, we had Patrick Kilpatrick. He's a guest on the show also, in fact. And uh, also, you know, another, another folk who was a regular on the show, I'm, I'm very curious to hear about, uh, Aaron Eisenberg, who played Nog, the late Aaron Eisenberg. Uh, oh, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't he hear any stories about working with him in particular. Well, I didn't get uh, a lot of real, just one-on-one. He was kind of part of our little group. And um, it, it was it was cool. He, I got the impression that, you know, well, what I'd seen before was that character was one that was not always taken that seriously. And some of the other scenes with his dad and stuff and trying to, you know, get in trouble once in a while, that kind of stuff. And, um, and he was really, you know, at the threshold of, uh, you know, becoming a young man. I mean, it was kind of like a, um, I'm turning, I'm, I'm stepping up here, yeah. I'm stepping up here. And that actor, uh, really was, I felt it, you know, it was very, uh, very apparent and he wasn't frivolous or anything in between, you know, takes and such. He was quite, uh, yeah, it was a pleasure. And what do you remember about working with Winrich Kolb, who was the director for this episode? I mean, this is essentially, you know, a war episode. It's very different than just about any Star Trek episode out there. What do you remember about how things were set up and especially those big fight scenes? Well, he was, um, a lot of more detailed direction, you know, conversations with him and Avery and uh, a lot with his DP, the director of photography. And um, and he would be pretty much uh, 
you know, he was pretty understated in terms of my, my relationship with him in terms of being, you know, yeah, give me more of that. That's that was right. That's right on. That's the right, uh, right on target there. And just kind of, and if you're being left alone, you kind of feel like you're being, uh, listen to your instincts, keep going with what you're doing. Kind of do your own um, thing basically. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's been a while. And I'm old, you know, I had a 92 year old favorite actor, friend of mine, Archie Smith. He's whenever he'd fail, he'd be like, well, I'm old, you know, <laughs> batting his eyelashes because he was sharp as a tack till he was 92. But um, yeah, I don't remember exactly the, some of the direction he gave, but uh, it was more him kind of dropping in and just kind of going, okay, this is, you know, where the stakes are, you know, really getting, you know, kind of elevating the situation, kind of giving us a temperature check on things, it seems to me. Like when we were inside the cavern and kind of laying out the what's happening and stuff, you know, it was uh, looking at the maps and stuff. It was, and then when we got down into the nitty gritty stuff, he's like, you know, it's like, yeah, like as if you're, as if you're you know, playing a, a, a war movie, I guess, you know, just, I mean, this episode is basically like Saving Private Ryan for Star Trek, and it's so much more realistic also. I think that's one of the reasons I, I like it and it appeals to me, because you know, Saving Private Ryan is one of my favorite movies also. Uh, and too. this is just, it's very much that. It's ground-level dogfighting. There's nothing pretty about this. It just, it is what it is. It's war. It's a literal war, and it's the first time we're really seeing anything like this on Star Trek with Starfleet people running around and actually doing this. Uh, so, yeah. you know, again, we, I think we've talked a little bit about now, you know, what you thought about it and what you brought to the table with some of the roles you had previously, but you know, just looking at the episode as a whole, I mean, what did you think about the content and the story for this? And, you know, and more so on top of that, you know, I mean, did you feel like it was a very non-Star Trek kind of thing to do? Yeah, from my exposure to, you know, I applauded it. I thought it was, you know, really bringing it home um, because here they are, you know, exploring new worlds and um, bringing what I interpret the mission of, you know, st Star Trek so has always been seeking the best of humanity and, and freedoms you know, from, I'd say humanity, but as well as the aliens, um, the best of all situations being fairness and, and freedoms and everyone's rights, you know, it, it's all. Uh, so that to tackle this, particularly the notion of whether or not they were going to leave them, it was uh heroic and i thought that his scene the avery brooks's scenes you know when he was still on the ship and deciding to was uh you know would have fit in any really nitty-gritty uh you know vietnam war episodes i've seen i'd say vietnam war just because that's my uh, my age you know yeah reference and I, looking back and i could see the green mile any of the world wars you know but um i loved it just loved it. It was uh, what finer crew to put that against the backdrop of. Um, I don't know whose idea it was or whatever, but um, how it evolved in terms of their scheme of things. Some of you, the fans that know the whole backgrounds and things of uh, that are far, far more <laughs> educated than I probably know more about how that evolved. But um, I was sure privileged to be a part of it. It's really great anytime you get to do something where you feel like you're, you know, doing, telling, telling an important, you know, wanting to impart something that you believe in. Not that the others aren't, but um, uh, 
anytime you can do that, it's, it's a, you feel grateful. Hmm. I mean, I feel like I'm not going out on a limb here when I ask that, is this your favorite episode that you did in Star Trek? Yep. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that was an easy answer. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like I said yeah. earlier, it definitely felt like the most Annette held, you know, getting to know you now. I feel like this this was the one that was really the most you out there. I mean, how, what do you feel about it? I mean, how much of yourself did you bring into this character? Oh, absolutely. It was um, just stripped me. It just, it could have been me. Hmm. It would have been, you know, Nadia Larkin, you know, Annette. And that allowed me to be, you know, do, you know, what if I were in this situation and I didn't have to make many removes from that. It was, uh, I did a few good men and I was in Washington, DC. And that was another similar thing with what if you were, you know, a naval, you know, uh, lawyer in the Navy who was in the situation seeing unfairness and you had to fight. Well, then it bring, you know, I was able to bring me, I was able to bring me to this because, uh, there didn't need to be a remove. It didn't need to be a character actor, you know, who's like someone who has a, uh, who's an alien who has this presupposition about life. You know, it was like more of a, it might be the um, 20s, whatever, third century or whatever, but it's, it's still kind of, you know, and it might be the American Federation, but it's the United States in a way. It's sort of like we are a democratic, you know, free society that, um, and yeah, it's just a privilege, man. It was, uh, I've known too many people that involved with wars and things that to not try to do your best to, um, do them credit, you know, and I know, and especially looking in the eyes of people like Avery Brooks and Ray Cruz, you know, who are just like taking it absolutely serious. You're going to portray someone who's giving their all in a, you know, war type situation. You better come up with the goods and mean it, you know, and, and make them proud kind of deal, you know? So yeah, it was really a privilege. I'm glad I got to do that. Now, if you don't mind me asking, I kind of just want to see if we can line up things chronologically here. Cause you mentioned, uh, that you moved to L.A. to kind of start caretaking for your mom a little bit. So is this still happening during the time that you're filming Star Trek? No. In around uh, 92, 93, I uh, decided my dad had passed in 87 in the middle of a Broadway show, Shakespeare, on Broadway, out of nowhere. God bless you, Dad. And uh, then after that, I started making my way. I, I, was in, I was in another show on Broadway, Tony Randall's Shakespeare Company. We were doing Time of Athens. And I remember reading the book by Pat Riley, The Winter Within. And I was being yanked, you know, I was getting these little God whispers about my mom being alone on the West Coast. And I'm there, I'm in New York, and I'm doing a, you know, wonderful piece. Michael Langham's directing. And uh, I read in the margins of that wonderful book, Never Underestimate Your Time on the Bench. And I was really, I, gave myself a little challenge to assess what I really, I needed to redirect. What do I really want to be going? What am I redefocus my, where do I want in my career now? And I needed to answer to my political, my personal pull, which was uh, I wanted to be near my mom. Mm. And I also wanted to explore film and television and everyone that I'd known had said, well, wait till you, you know, Annette, you're so close to, you know, you're doing such good work, you know, wait till you get a Tony or something like that. You go out there with clout and this kind of thing. I kept saying to people, my, I'm not a, I'm a character actor, you know, I'm, I'm going to, you know, be able to get some work or I'm not. And so when I was about in uh, four or five weeks into that show, I started thinking, okay, well, I'll start 
planning your move. And uh, once I did that, I was really released. I became so happy. And I had a whole new purpose and surge. And um, and actually, then as things I want to do, I, I was presented with a chance to audition for a role that was going to come up after the end. Because the Tony Randall's company, they had set seasons. They didn't you know, run until the show just you know ran out. So I was able to go to uh, the Old Globe Theater in San Diego to do a friend of mine's piece called uh, Dirt with James Whitmore, wonderful actor. And after San Diego in Actors Equity, they will pay for like, you know, many, many pounds of luggage with you. Hmm. So that was my, okay, well, I can get to move to the West Coast and get a lot of my stuff there. I didn't have a lot of stuff, but, you know, still have stuff and uh, make my exit. So I did that. Did the show down there. Then I was just San Diego up to Long Beach, um, moved up there, and I had thought, well, maybe I'll need to be in um, proximity to LA and closer. But the thing was, is that the time that I would have with my mom was over tea and coffee in the morning and night tucking her, you know, whatever. It was, um, and she was still real alert and viable and fun and, you know, like could be on her own. But it didn't make sense for me to be up in LA and just, uh, you know, try to, okay, I'm going to come down, you know, we're going to go out to dinner or, you know, it's more the everyday nitty gritties because neither of us are splashy people and stuff. It was just the, you know, reading the paper in the morning over, you know, that kind of stuff that would be important. So I chose to be there with her and then commute up and back. And then it was wonderful. I got, like I said, with Star Trek blessing for my first job there. And, um, I did a lot of, uh, work, over that like 94 to 98 ish period. And um, a lot of episodics, the wonderful recurring role on uh, Providence as the orthopedic surgeon and um, uh, some other films and um, crime of the century. That was fun with uh, Isabella Rossellini. And anyway, the, uh, I got cast in the Titanic. And I was down there in Mexico filming and we were doing, (laughs) it was, James Cameron was shooting about five times as much film as he needed. And it was pretty extreme. And it was down there between Rosarito and uh, Ensenada in Mexico. The whole, they built like a 90% size of the Titanic down there. And then a smaller one to do all the green screen stunts and stuff on and we were staying at the Real Del Mar and uh, it was a very small bar and you had people from the UK, England, Germany, uh, Wales, France, Italy, <laughs> this international cast uh, on call till three in the morning. Did the wind dies down, we're going to start shooting again, the scene, you know, la la la. And you had people that were just really on edge because it was way over time. People had been there for, I'd been there for almost three months and I hadn't shot a scene yet. And being paid wonderfully, (laughs) but nevertheless, I was, again, you know, kind of being shy or I wasn't out there just, you know, making, you know, big palsy wowsy with everybody. I I had great respect for some of the Kathy Bates and, you know, I'm not going to go sit at her table, you know, at dinner. I'm not going to, you know, um, all these wonderful people around and wonderful times that I had and the people were wonderful, but I wanted out to do 
something. <laughs> so Christmas time came and it was like the last chopper out of Nam and people were like begging to get out. I remember Kathy Bates being down there about two in the morning one night and we were all called down there and got shuttled down to pick up at this one scene. And she said, I heard this voice through the halls going, I can't work like this. And I have nothing but respect for that woman. She was <laughs> not being a pain in the rear. She was being very real and the way everybody was. But that was my ticket out because um, a dear, dear friend of mine at the time, Israel Hicks, was directing a lot at the Denver Center Theater. And I'd heard all about how wonderful this company was, a res- Donovan Marley really creating a resident company and paying more than they paid on Broadway. I mean, it was in wonderful condominiums. They set you up. They had a whole season, la, la, la. Long story short, um, I got a call saying, you know, they need another person. They need the B woman for Three Tall Women, Edward Albee's Three Tall Women. I said, no, I've talked to Matt, Matt McCorkle casting it and it's cast, you know, la, la, la. And, no, it's not, Annette. It's not. And I know the director, la, la, la. And I said, well, I don't think I can get out of this. I mean, it's just, and so push come to shove, begged and begged and begged. And uh, Oliver, I mean, James Cameron was very sweet and uh, saying, okay, you know, I'll give you your out. <laughs> and we're going to shoot your scene tonight. I was one of those upper middle class, upper first class women, you know, with all her jewelry, you know, going, oh, they're going to have us back on board by, you know, breakfast and Go, being put into the lifeboats as we were going, you know, her furs and all this stuff, and which is a short little scene. But what had happened was, if you hang out, your character got more and more and more. So I was giving that up. I knew it, but that's okay because I was getting an invitation to come out to a resident company to do theater with a wonderful ensemble doing wonderful work and a director who said, on the basis of people who know you, I'm going to cast you in this unseen. So I didn't even have to audition. And he was inviting me to come out to do it. And I began a seven years with the Denver Center Theater that I wouldn't have traded for the world as being one of the resident company members. Um, so I was able to do that for most, for seven years, do this, their season and then come home and be with mom uh, for the most of the summer. And that worked out really well until I went back out to, uh, well, I was in working in, um, in Denver when friends of mine and the neighbors were calling saying it was toward the end of the season in 2005. And they said, your mom's acting really weird, la, la, la. And sure enough, I was saying, you know, she's calling the cops. She thinks there's people in her backyard. And so I, I had a, wonderful dog at the time and a 1980 Mercedes Benz that was a turbo diesel. We packed it all up and we would make a vacation coming in and out of Denver, about, take about four or five days each way. And I said, mom, don't call the police anymore. The show just ended last night. I was going to take a couple of weeks, but I'm coming home. Give me three days. Just give me three days. I'm going to be home in three days. Okay. And asking the neighbors just to keep an eye out for her and just threw everything out. I had a feeling I wasn't probably going to be coming back. And I just went free, you know, putting things out from my economy, you know. It was an event and I met the challenge and came home and Scruffy was the whole time was like going, we're really going fast home. You know, we usually take a long time. I get to stay in Santa Fe and they give me a pork top and, you know, this is not our usual descent. 
And sure enough, we got her diagnosed and she had stopped taking her meds. She, she'd run out of one of her medications that if you take discontinued abruptly, it uh, produces a lot of hallucinations and such. So we got her back on things and all that. But regardless, yes, it was the beginning of Alzheimer's. So I made the decision to eventually, I could still leave her at that time. And I toyed with the idea of just doing commercials, but I couldn't leave, you know, go to Mexico and shoot films and stuff like that anymore. And I had a regroup. And um, so I picked up a couple of little bartending gigs just to kind of pad the, till I found a, you know, what am I going to do? I had a big nest egg, but it basically went over 10 years and um, I wouldn't trade it for the world. And my brother was a wonderful, he just is an amazing big brother and he helped and um, has continued. And after about 10 years, I couldn't move her anymore by myself. So I moved her to a facility, but she was always one who said, if my head's above ground, I'm going to appreciate life. I'm going to find a way to love it. And she kept up her verb and laughter and spiciness all the way. And she lived with Alzheimer's for 16 years, wow. which is unheard of. Yeah, that's, that's and pretty she, long. And she did not have to go through the end stages, which is forgetting how to breathe, forgetting how to. And she just reached a point. I'd been up there two days before to see her and all for COVID, everything. Mm-hmm. And she had um, met my husband at the time, you know, all through that time, she would like take his hand and my hand and, you know, She'd become aphasic by that point, so she didn't have a lot of words anymore. But two days before, we were up there, and, and we were always very physical and hugging and stuff. And we are this and that and the other, and she's, like, looking at the, and I go, are we seeing people up there? Is that people you know or the angels? Or, mm, yeah. And she was really talking to people. She was being called. And she took my hand off of her, and she put it down on the table. She patted it, you know, and like I'm on, you can be on your own. You're okay. I'm okay. And sure enough, two days later, when Lydia, wonderful nurse called and said, I think she's going. And even I was, I got there in three minutes and she just passed. And she said, uh, she had dinner. She had her ice cream. So we cleaned her up and put her to bed. She tucked in with her bear. And five minutes later, she chose the way to go. And she went out the best at what I'd prayed for. So that was a blessing, but I stayed in caregiving and worked because I knew all this stuff about Alzheimer's. So I stayed in caregiving instead of returning to acting because I knew so much. It was a different calling. Now it was a different perspective and it was another journey, you know, so that's why I'm doing that. I, I thought I was going to be an actor till I was 90, just kick me off this stage, you know, but it's been very, very rewarding. And I wouldn't change it. Well, thank you for doing that. That's very hard work to do. It takes a special person to be able to handle that kind of emotional toll and the physical toll and just all the mental toll, the mental exhaustion. So, you know, really uh, true kudos to you for being able to do that. Well, thank you. It, she was selfless. It was a no brainer for me. All right. So Annette, that's pretty much your Star Trek career in a nutshell. A lot of really cool things. And we talked about a bunch of different things from your career, uh, very diverse, interesting career, but let's kind of lightning around a few things real quick here. And, okay. uh, Starting with best gig you ever had and the worst gig you ever had. Acting gigs? Acting gigs, yep. Bartending uh, doesn't count this time around. <laughs> uh, best gig, it's got to be Wits. Um, the show I told you about with the woman of cancer, one woman's show, it was just so edifying. Worst gig, uh, it's got to be um, uh, A Christmas Carol. 
playing one of the uh, um, the Cockney uh, chimney sweep ladies who roll around on the ground and, and you have to change about 12 times and you have to do about, you know, 17 performances in, in, a, in a week and it's in heavy, hot costumes. And yeah, that was the worst. All right, Governor, how about a moment for your performing mm-hmm. career that was most exactly. challenging for you that became the most rewarding? Playing Rosalind in As You Like It. This time it was at uh, in New York for the New York Acting Unit. And I was across from an actress playing Celia, her best friend, who kept kind of working upstage. And as I said before, I'm not a real assertive, aggressive kind of actor. And finally, the director came up and said, step into my office and um, said, you're the lead in this and that. And I need you to take it upstage and take back your space. I'm not going to comment on the other actors, but uh, you just need to take it. And that gave me the psychological, the rewarding part is it gave me the psychological permission to, you're right, they need to see you. And uh, there's a reason for them. So, so I just became, you know, much more aggressive about going upstage and countering her saying, you know, this is, they've got to see this part the way this director wants this to be, you know, happening. We got into a little bit of a, we both wound up kind of at the, <laughs> the way upstage and the director finally went, this ain't going to work. You <laughs> And he took Celia downstage and he said, put her in front of an easel painting in the forest of Arden and going, you sit here. Okay. And then that gave me free reign to go on, you know. <laughs> so it was, it was a challenge, though. So the real siege of AR-558 was in that role, not on DS9. No, that was, um, I, I knew what to do in that. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I just went, you know, uh, it, it was... Uh, the challenge was to, to make it real, mm. give it your all, commit, and uh, everything around all those wonderful actors you're with and the wonderful uh, environment allowed you to be able to do that. I could have been better, I'm sure, but I gave it what I had at the time. I did my best. You know, that's all I can ask for. How about most valuable piece of advice that someone ever told you? It can be about life or it can be about acting. Uh, most valuable piece of advice someone ever told you that you still use and think about today. In Shu Allen from the Royal Shakespeare Company told me, told a group of us, they came over to the United States touring and Patrick Stewart was one of them, actually Ben Kingsley. Um, and they're sitting there in our classrooms and people are asking them questions, talk back, you know, talk and answer at the end of things. And how do you know if you should really get into this business? I mean, I mean, I know I want to do it. And, blah, blah, blah. and Sheila said, if you want it badly enough, it will find you. And then I've heard other people say in the same, you know, kind of vein, uh, if you don't need to do it, don't. It's that much of a jealous mistress, shall I say. It's uh, It takes so much sacrifice. And uh, you do tend to need to become myopic and um, a little self-centered. I hate to say, I mean, it's a breath of fresh air to be out of it right now, being in a serving capacity. Maybe that's why I enjoy caregiving so much and now caring for my husband who's fighting cancer because that was then and I gave it every cent I had. And I mean, from the beginning of the morning, if I'm doing a show that night, it's, um, you know, in my, you know, things to do. Anyway, lightning round, so I won't go on further. Um, it's very true. I mean, I think anything we've seen you in that we've talked about today and even other things, you really put your entire self into everything that you do. So uh, it's very apparent. I can imagine you're an excellent caretaker. So 
uh, again, just going to compliment you again on, your, on what you're doing. Cause it's, uh, it's definitely worth complimenting. I think even more than the acting, what you're doing. So, uh, yeah, last thing for today, Annette, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, oh, well, I was really looking forward to fans that are so into it. And um, I was invited to, and I was all signed up to do the um, Star Trek convention in Las Vegas last year. And because of COVID and my husband's um, uh, being immunocompromised at the last minute, we had to say, because there was a surge and we just went, oh man, it's just going to be too dangerous for us. We can't. And hopefully in the future, maybe that'll change and I'll be able to do that again. I don't know if you ever attended that kind of thing. But um, uh, to see the, I went on the, you know, different web pages and stuff on Facebook and seeing the people's uh, imaginations and their, uh, you know, what it meant to be involved and kind of, because the story, again, I'll go back to this original mission of being part of uh, a show that was um, about bettering humanity, being the best of yourself. Go out and find, you know, worlds unknown and um, bring to it, uh, it's, it's positivity. Being part of that, um, a piece that you say, yes, the reason you say yes to a project. And I've hopped right on board. I mean, my gosh, the Star Trek universe is so, uh, and I hopped to the fans too, because that's um, the people who are all inclusive about, you know, everyone involved. It's just like, it's a, a real positive experience optimism and um all that i'm not very articulate <laughs> i mean we have been talking for like nearly two hours net so i think you're allowed to be a little less articulate at this point in the interview that's all good <laughs> but you know yeah i haven't actually been to the star trek las vegas yet either i'm hoping 2023 is the year i'm gonna make it happen so i hope to see you there too so uh, it'd be awesome to get your autograph somehow and uh yeah it'd be cool to take a photo with you and you know it's been again wonderful being able to spend this amount of time with you today also and really educating myself and my audience about what you do, who you are, your, all your cool Star Trek stuff, but more so also, again, the caretaking, because I think that's such really a truly amazing thing to do. So, you know, uh, congratulations on that and, and what you're doing there. And well, again, I've yeah. been really honored and, and kind of flattered that you would even think that uh, I should be on here. So thank you very, very much. I'll, now, I wish you had cats right now, because I could totally say live long and prosper, but I can't <laughs> do that. So maybe live long and prosper. That's right. Give long and That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Trek Untold, all one word. If you'd like to directly support this podcast, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold, which gives you access to some great perks that can't be beat. Or pick up some merchandise from our store, or use my Amazon shop link to check out all kinds of different Star Trek merchandise. Links for all these things are in the show notes. Shout out to Triple Fiction Productions for being a key sponsor of Trek Untold. Don't forget to check them out and all of the fine folks whose ads you've seen or heard on this podcast, too. Special thanks to Scott Ray for providing us with this week's guest. If you'd like to book them for an autograph signing or convention appearance, email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. If you have any questions, feedback, or comments for the show, or would like to suggest a guest or discuss sponsorship options for any of these episodes in the future, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. I hope to see you here again as we uncover more untold stories from Star Trek and beyond, and get to know even more amazing people who have contributed to this ever-expanding universe. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. 
Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.